Welcome to Golf Lovers United, where we discuss golf the fair way. Joining us today is 2004 Volvo PGA Championship winner and Rookie of the Year in Europe that year, Mr. Scott Drummond. In this wide-ranging interview conducted by Jay and Ben, we talk about all sorts of things throughout Scott's career and dive deep into what it takes to become a player of that caliber. It's a really, really interesting conversation. I know you're going to really, really enjoy it. If you do enjoy it, if you want to tell your friends about it, of course you can do so by telling them to listen to Golf Lovers United in their podcast app of choice or at glugc.com. And if you want to get in touch with us, let us know your thoughts on this or indeed any episode of the show. You can do so at GLU Golf Club on Twitter. Grab yourself a cuppa and enjoy this interview with Scott Drummond. 2004, it hadn't, it had been an okay year. And then all of a sudden, you're the PJ champion. Talk to us about that. Yeah, it's, uh, it all changed in a week. Um, yeah, so 2004 was my first full year on, on the European Tour, as it was uh, obviously called back then. Um, I'd come off a really good year on the Challenge Tour, finished seventh um, with a win uh, to finish seventh on the Order of Merit. So was getting into most of the events and uh, hadn't really made any changes to my equipment or, or my game or my swing through the winter because you know, I'd been playing well. So... Just was hoping to roll out the start of uh, 2004 with, with the form that I'd, I'd had on the Challenge Tour. Um, and I think I had a top 15 in South Africa, one of the first events, so that was quite pleasing. But then I got on a little run where uh, I just couldn't make it happen. And um, it seemed like every every slightly poor shot I was hitting, I was finishing in a really bad spot and making a double or a triple. Um, you know, somewhere within the first two rounds. And then I was just missing cuts and um, confidence gets hit a little bit. And, um, you know, it's, it's you try and stick to your processes and what you're practicing on, all, all the stuff that everybody's heard before. Um, and, you know, I knew I was hitting it well and, and stuff on, on the range and my practice rounds were good. Um, and I was just, you know, was, was waiting for it to turn around. And uh, Wentworth was obviously going to be the biggest event for me that year and uh having grown up watching that event you know from from a little kid um I'd never been to Wentworth before even though I lived down the road for a couple of years just prior to winning um my good mate was uh one of the assistants at Sunningdale so I used to go and practice and play a lot with him in the evenings and, and we lived very close to, to Wentworth and Sunningdale but I'd never actually even been on the property to, to have a look so it was a week that we really wanted to enjoy, me and my caddy, and we said, look, if we can just eliminate, you know, those costly doubles or triple that gets thrown in, we can be there for four days, put put four solid rounds together, and that'll, that'll go a long way towards, um, you know, trying to get enough money to keep my card that year, and um, lo and behold, it, it went a little bit better than that. Yeah, a little bit better is an understatement. You, you, you won it, and obviously, the people listening to this now... Um, We'll have just, this will come out just after the, the, the Wentworth finished this week. And do you want to just say a little bit about, before we get into your week and how that went, and I know obviously you you, you played, you, you went to the wire against a couple of fantastic golfers and big name golfers. Talk to us about the course, because obviously so many people have seen it and that, that iconic sort of 18th, you've got, so you've got so many holes there. Talk to us a bit about the course and what you feel about that. 
Well, I mean, obviously, um, I mean, some people may not know, but the, the course was different when I won in 2004. I think the changes started in about 2006, seven, um, and they were very dramatic changes. Um, so if you're looking at the course today, although all the holes are in the same uh, in the same place, in the same rotation, the course has changed massively. I mean, when I, when I won, it played very much like a Heathland course, um, you know, firm, bouncing it around a little bit, trying to work the ball in, um, like a Heathland course, you know, should be when it's dry. And obviously now it's very different. A lot of bunkers added, a lot of fairway bunkers made very deep, so they're pretty penal if you go in those off the tee. And then you've really got to flight the ball high into most of the most of the greens. There's no real you know shots where you're running it in. Um, I, I like it now. When it was first changed, it was really severe, and uh, they had to soften a few changes because uh, it, it, it was just way too penal, and you know you missed the green on on a certain side, and you, you virtually couldn't keep it on. You know when you were trying to chip it on or play from a bunker. So they softened it, and I think they've got it into a really good place now. And obviously, it's, uh, I mean, I've just been watching a little bit of it, and it's, you know, it's in phenomenal condition. Um, but it's a great course, and, you know, an iconic course. And like I say, I, I grew up watching that event from when I got interested in golf about the age of eight or nine. And uh, so, although I'd never been there until that, that week in 2004, I felt like I knew, you know, pretty much every part of the course having watched it. Um, on the TV coverage. I think one of the things you said that's that's really important that I would love people to get, and Jay and I were discussing this about what do you prefer, Sunningdale or Wentworth. Now, you made a really important point there that Wentworth that you see today isn't the Wentworth, well, well, it, they're similar there. It was much more of a Heathland course. It did play a lot a lot more like Sunningdale than it, than it does now. And do you think that's, well, look, I know about being horrible, do you think that's a good thing that it's changed? Because actually, I quite like looking at those old videos and it playing like a Heathland course. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, people are going to have mixed opinions on it. Um, and I know there was, you know, as you'll know, there was obviously a lot of controversy at the time with the changes. Um, I think Paul Casey was one of the most outspoken saying, you know, it's almost criminal to take a, you know, a fine piece of work like Wentworth West course and, and to change it. Um, you know, and uh, if somebody said they were going to take the, the old course at Sunningdale and do the same, you know, how much sort of uproar would there be? Um, but I think, you know, the difference with Wentworth, um, it was owned by a guy, Richard Caring, I think at the time. He'd spent a lot of money buying the course. He wanted to change it. He wanted the scoring. I mean, I won with 19 under, which tied the lowest score. Um, but it was generally around 15 under, you know, plus that, that was winning. Um, not to say that it was easy because, as we just said, when it's playing a bit Heathlandy, you know, fast and fiery, um, it's not always e easy to control it. And the greens were poor back then as well, and they were they were pretty tricky. Um, but I think Richard Caring really wanted this wanted it to play more like a major tournament. You know, perhaps something like a U.S. Open where the score winning score was closer to par. And I think even for one year after the changes, they made the 12th hole, the par 5 12th dog leg, right to left, where you tee off over the famous sort of pine trees. Um, they reduced that to a par 4 and played it as a par 71. So they were doing all they could really to peg the, the score in, the winning score you know, right back. Um, and I guess there's an element where you would say, well, okay, 
you know, Richard Caring paid the money, he bought the property. It's kind of his right to, to do that. Um, and some people are going to like it and some people are going to hate it. And uh, for me at the time, you know, it was kind of, there was a lot of bitching and moaning going on about it amongst the players and um, perhaps where some guys were getting a bit distracted by it. And for me, it was kind of, okay, I loved it as it was because that's how I first knew it and that's how I won. Um, but you know what? The changes have been made and you've kind of got to embrace it and go forward with it and not not have any sort of negative feeling towards it because that's not going to help you when you're you know trying to play a tournament. Yeah, would would you say that that some of the because I love Wentworth as a course as an American, uh, it's always like you know appointment viewing for me in the morning, uh, coffee golf, watching the BMW PGA or as you you want to I think it was called the Volvo P, uh, PGA. Would would you say that the course became a little bit more Americanized because it does seem like you know that might have been the direction they were going in. I think it was like Ernie Els that that did some of the the redo, but uh, it does seem like maybe there there's more some more American components to it to it now than there used to be. Is uh, am I on to some something there, or what are what are your feel, feelings on that? Yeah, yeah, I think you spot on there, Jay. I think um, that that's the word that's used a lot. Um, amongst the Europeans for for what's happened to Wentworth is that it's been Americanized. Um, and again, you know, a lot of people will like that um, and a lot of people won't like it. But uh, it's, you know, I mean, like I say, I've just been watching it now and, um, you know, visually, you know, it looks great on the TV. Um, and obviously the modern players now, you know, so much power, so much flight on the ball when they want it, you know, moon balls coming in, you know, even with lions into some of these holes. So it kind of works. Um, the old school game with uh, persimmons and balata balls, I'm not sure would, <laughs> would be quite so easy around there right now. Um, but yeah, I think Americanized is definitely the, uh, uh, the way to sum it up. Do me a favor. Take me to day two. You weren't playing badly, but you, you'd you had a first round, you'd shot six under. Second round, you didn't really improve on that, really to, to move up that leaderboard. It was day three and four. So talk us a little bit about how you, you hot start day one. Then talk us talk me sort of talk me through that day two and then into that into day three and four. Let, let's have let's have ten minutes of you telling the viewers what it's really like to. I'll just list some of the players that played in that event that were in that were on the top of the leaderboard: Ernie Els, um, Miguel Angel Jimenez, VJ Singh, Angel Cabrera, Cole Sartz, um, Faldo, Rose, Darren Clark, um, Ian Poulter. Like we're talking some some serious serious golfers here. So just. Talk to me. Day one was a dream start, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, stellar field, like it, like it nearly always is. Um, so for me, I got, I got a really late draw. I got like a three o'clock, three thirty tea time, almost like an open, you know, tea time. Um, and I pitched up at lunchtime, and I think Ernie and Ernie had shot. I think he might have shot eight under, and. Um, you kind of look at the board and you think, okay, that's what you expect from Ernie. Um, you know, he's the match play king round there, although the PGA was obviously the one that he wanted to win um, and he never did. Um, so, yeah, I had a late tea time and I was out there, you know, apart from a few friends and family walking around, there was virtually nobody out there when we were playing. 
And it was a lovely summer's evening. Obviously, the championship was played at the end of May um, around that time. And to me, you know, it just felt like I was down the road playing with my mate at Sunningdale. Um, just the feel, the smells, the whole sort of thing. So I was pretty relaxed and, yeah, I just got a really, really solid start. Didn't make any mistakes. You know, wedge play was good. Putter was hot. And uh, and I shot six under and that was, you know, that was great. And um, like I say, my, my, my hopes at the start of the week were to go out and have four solid rounds. Um, expectations weren't really high. Um, they were high enough because, you know, my practice and play was good, but um, I'd been on a poor run of results. So um, I was really just going out there to see what I could do. So uh, that was day one. That was great. And then I got my early time second day. And to be honest with you, um, I mean, I, pl- I played solid again. And people ask me about how, quite often ask me, you know, what was it like coming down the stretch on Sunday? You know, you must have been so nervous and all of that. And I say, well, I was actually more nervous once I turned for home um, on the 13th tee on Friday because that stretcher holes coming back into the clubhouse there, those final six, for me, you know, you can you can run up some doubles, you know, in a hurry round there if you're if you're not if you're slightly off, but if you're off or way off, obviously, um, you, you can just you can just rack it up because it gets it gets a bit bit claustrophobic coming down the stretch there. And so for me, that's the most nervous I was because I think I was I was around about level par one under for the day, um, which was keeping me around six under. But I knew that. You know, I needed full concentration on what I was doing because two or three errant shots, and, and again, it could be another cut missed, um, you know, when I've started the tournament so well. So for me, that's probably when I felt the most nervous was, was getting through those those final six holes on Friday. And, uh, and I negotiated them pretty well, you know, uh, didn't make any huge mistakes, got in the house with a 71, and uh, anything subpar, you know, w- was a good score. So in a nice position after two rounds. Um, and for me, you know, first objective done. I've made the cut in my biggest event of the year as it was going to be. So I had the weekend to look forward to, playing well, swinging well, and, and having a great feel about the week and, and the tournament. Um, so Saturday, day three, that was actually my 30th birthday. Um, so there was, there was a bit going on and my wife, Claire was there with, uh, with her parents, my parents and, um, and our four week old daughter, Kira. So, um, it it was quite an eventful week. Um, I had some good distraction away from the golf, um, so I could go to the club, get my work done, uh, and get out of there and, and have some relaxing time or, um, not quite so relaxing with a four-week-old baby, but um, it, it got me away from 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 being at the club all day because that's that's the other thing. First year on tour and going to these these great tournaments, um, it's very easy just to spend too much time at the club, um, and you start practicing perhaps more than you would, um, and just hanging around in that in that environment at the event, which you know you wouldn't normally do. You you just go and do your work you know, whether it's practicing or practice then playing and then you get out of there. So I had some good distraction. Um, 
So really looking forward to to the Saturday. And I was playing with Darren Fickard, a South African guy who, I, who I'd known a little bit from Challenge Tour days. And uh, we both went out and played really well. And um, funny enough, I don't remember too much about the third round um, other than that it was just a really solid round of golf. We both shot 68. And uh, that put us up to seven. That put us up to 11 under at the end of the day. Um, again, it was just a day to, to really enjoy being there. Um, played very solid. Like I say, 68 was a great score. And it, and it actually moved, well, myself and Darren, you know, to within one of the leader at the end of the day, which was Angel Cabrera. Um, somebody who, you know, for me was a, an incredible golfer. And uh, your careers have gone different ways of late, right? <laughs> careers have gone different ways, and you know, off course stuff's gone different ways as well. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's it's mainly the off course stuff that's the biggest difference. I'd well, say. Yeah, um, yeah, he's had a lot of life yeah, changes. I mean, since yeah, then, you, so, yeah, it's like on a yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it's not gone well for him uh, off the golf course, obviously. Um, so the cards went in, and I mean, I still actually don't know if it's. You know, you hand your card in first, you go out last, or whether it's done on on the draw from day three. But as it turned out, you know, Darren Fickard and I were on the same score, but it was myself that was was drawn in the last group to play with Cabrera. So uh, got away from the course Saturday night, um, my thirtieth birthday. Claire's mum and dad looked after Kira while we went out for a uh, a really nice Chinese meal just down the road um, from where we were staying. Um, I mean, we were staying in a staying in a travel lodge just just along the A30 there, and um, yeah, I mean, it's, I I do remember we you know it's a, it's a I mean it's a brilliant week Wentworth and you know quite a close community there, a few hotels nearby, lots of people you know you see lots of people in various restaurants and bits and pieces when you're out a bit like when you you play in St Andrews and you're in the town and you know, bars and restaurants are filled with players and, and spectators and whatever. So we went for this really nice meal. I could see there was a few people, you know, looking in the restaurant. They, they kind of recognized me from, from the golf. And, um, I mean, I, I remember Claire saying, you know, can you imagine if you win this bloody thing tomorrow? And, uh, I was like, yeah, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to really imagine it and get into it, but, um, and it would just be incredible, but you know, I've just got to go and, and do what I can do tomorrow. It's it's you know biggest day of my golfing life coming up. So, um, and there it was. You know, we we got to Sunday, and it was a fairly late tee off. Um, weather was pretty good. It's a little bit little bit showers on and off. I think um, I was really you know relishing the fact of going out in the last group, and um, a lot of those big names that you. Um, you mentioned there, Ben, that were in the groups just ahead. I think it was a good thing for me because um, they pulled most of the crowd out onto the golf course. So myself and Cabrera, we obviously had people watching, but for the first nine holes, probably the first 12 holes, really, we didn't have too many people. You know, they were off watching Faldo, who was having a great week, um, kind of a bit out of the blue for him, I think, because his, his career was was really tailing off. Um, and he wasn't playing that much perhaps, but he, he was having a really good week. Darren Clark, obviously a big draw, um, Adam Scott, those sort of guys. So, um, the crowds weren't, weren't enormous around the first tee. Um, the other thing I remember, which, um, 
couple of things which is quite funny um, just before going over to the first tee. Uh, I remember being on the putting green there and uh, with my caddy Kev, Kev Smith, who was a huge part of, of my victory, as, as was my coach at the time, Keith Williams. Um, but I remember being on the putting green there and I literally couldn't get it in the hole from anything outside two feet. Um, I was just trying to have some nice, relaxed, you know, putts, short range, three, four, five, six feet. I like to sort of knock a load of those in and then get some pace putts going, but, um, you know, before I go out, but I literally just couldn't get it in the hole. And uh, it, it got to a point, it was a bit laughable. So we, we stopped, um, we stopped the putting and um, we stood chatting on the side of the putting green and, then it was our time to go over to the first tee and, and Kev said something to me which was um, which was really, really important and it was a huge thing and, and I will never forget it. And he basically said, listen, um, before we go out there today, he said, just remember that it doesn't matter what happens out today on the course for you and, and the score at the end of the day. He said, no one can ever take away from you um, the position you're in now going out in the final group. And, uh, and that was a big thing for me. And I thought, yeah, you're right. And the pressure wasn't on me to, to win. Um, you know, obviously anything around par would have been a great score. Um, the thing for me, I didn't want to shoot 80 and blow myself, you know, way out of the top 10. Um, that's not to say I wasn't feeling like I could win if I played well, because, you know, I, I did feel like that. Um, but being kind of realistic, you know, to, to put a solid round together, something close to par would have, would have been great. And, um, you know, in, in that respect, the, the pressure was, the pressure was off for me to have a great round. The pressure was on for me not to have a really bad round. But at the same time, you know, even if I had shot 80, you know, people probably would have said, well, you know, that's kind of to be expected, you know, first time in that position in such a massive event in the final group. So, um, you know, there's a few of those little thoughts went through my mind, especially after what Kev said to me there on the, on the, on the, on the putting green before we went to the first tee and, um, and then we were off and running and, um, the first the front nine was just a blur, to be honest. Um, it, it really, I think I was so, so in the zone, um, in terms of just all week, I just literally tried to, uh, we all talk about you know the uh, the only the only important shot is the next shot and staying focused on the next shot and all of that and and you know we all talk about that and, and we can do it you know to, for the most part but I think that week I had been really really heavily focused on that and um, you know that's how I was able just to blot everything out and, and thoughts of winning and you know thoughts of where I might need to finish just to keep my card and all of that or the glory and everything that would come with winning I, you know. I hadn't thought about that. And um, playing in front of crowds was, was something that, that I enjoyed. Um, that, that never fazed me. I, I'd enjoyed that from the start of the, that year, being on tour and playing with some crowds. Um, so that, that part of it didn't phase me. Uh, and yeah, front nine was just pretty much a bit of a blur. Um, we had some showers on and off, waterproof jackets were on and off. And, and then before I knew it, we were, we were sort of you know, into the back nine and, and that's where it was really contending. Um, and I just, again, I was just trying to play each hole, keep it in position, get it on the green, near the green, give myself a chance on every, on every putt that I had, no matter what the distance was. Um, as long as it wasn't two to three feet, like the putt to practice was, green, you were feeling two confident. Two feet was fine. <laughs> 
but but outside two feet was um, was a bit of a problem on the putting green that day. I, I love it. I love this, Scotty. So I want to hear the, the, the last nine, and I know the audience will too. But we had Eugenio Shakara on last week, who was talking about putting and how we ask a question, we'll ask you later, what's your, your, your love hate club in a bag? And like he said, his putter, like when it's working, it's great. When it's not, it's, it's terrible. But I think it's amazing, Jay. We're hearing a story from someone who's won one of the outside of the majors. It's one of the top three, four tournaments in the to world. Me, absolutely. Yeah. Has been yeah, yeah. for God knows how long. Yeah. And you end up, you end, we, we know you end up winning. We've, we've not sport the story. You, you, everyone knows that. You shoot eight under for the day and you're still having worries about putting. I think that's absolutely incredible. That that flat stick, I don't care if you're a 36 handicapper or what you are now, which is plus five, plus six, and you've won one of the biggest events in the world and people still worry about putting. It's brilliant, isn't it? Well, it's the... Um... Uh, you know, I always say it's uh, if you play well, um, then putting well gives you the chance to shoot the 64 or something like that. Um, if you play really well and you don't putt well, you know, you may not shoot under par, even no matter how well you've played. Um, but if you play really poorly and you putt great, then you can salvage something and be round about par. So it is so important. And um, I'll never forget a, um, I think it was a Faldo interview. Um, before he won the Masters one year, talking about you know how he was feeling on the Saturday night, and he had said to himself, um, he said, "It doesn't matter how I play tomorrow, I'm just going to hold everything." And he'd set himself up in that mindset that he wasn't worrying about his game and where he might hit it, and, and you know certain holes on the course. Um, he just said, "I'm going to go out there, and regardless of how I play, I'm just going to hold everything on the greens." Um, and that's obviously a, a great mindset to have. Um, it, it wasn't so easy for me to have that mindset with those five minutes I had on the putting green where everything was lipping out. But um, thankfully, it didn't. Um, it didn't. I didn't take that to the course, and uh, I did putt really well, as, as you know. Um, make no bones about it. It was you know I played really solid all week. Uh, if I got in trouble or you know got a bad line in the rough, I was getting myself out to my number, which was a hundred yards. Um, which I felt really confident on, and then I did feel confident on the greens, even though you know they were they were power greens and they were you know difficult in the afternoon, especially when the grass had grown a little bit. Um, a lot of players really didn't enjoy the greens at Wentworth um, back then, um, but for me, you know, I'd obviously putted well first three days and, and, and had no reason to not not be confident. Yeah. So we've got a few holes left to go. You're, you've now realised there's no way you can't that this is yours to win slash lose. You, you, you're not going to post the 80 and crumble. You're not going to finish outside the top 10. Talk us through you versus Angel Cabrera, three holes left to go. How are you? What, what are you thinking? What are your emotions? How does it feel in these last three holes? Well, I mean, that, it was pretty intense then. Um, as you can imagine, because um, the groups ahead had finished, so the crowd was really filtering back and, and started building up around 15, 15, 16. Um, so it, it was getting intense. Um, I'll be honest with you, I, I wasn't looking at scoreboards. I'd, I'd said to Kev after after we shot the first, you know, the first round really good, uh, we were getting in a good position. We said, look, you know, we're not going to look at any lead, or I'm not going to look at any leaderboards. Kev would know what's going on. 
Um, so I, I, I held, you know, I held my side of the bargain with that and I wasn't looking at leaderboards. Um, and there were less leaderboards out there and less obvious leaderboards than there are today. Um, so that was a bit easier to do. I knew I was playing well. I knew I'd made some birdies. Again, I wasn't focusing on my score. Um, but I knew, you know, the crowd had, had piled back and I knew that we were probably, you know, within, I was within a shot, whether it was a shot behind, a shot ahead or, or, or level with Angel. Um, I knew that was the position. And um, 16, you know, is a, I think it's a very underrated hole or it was an under, very underrated hole back then. Um, again, the tee shot gets a little bit tight. Uh, it's not really one where you can, blast a driver or a three wood down there and, and, and leave yourself a, a lob wedge in because it's it, it narrows up so much. But got it in position off the tee and the pin was in the back back middle of the green, which is a really small section. Um, and the wide part of the green was um, was, was in the middle. And um, I remember I needed a time to get back to that back flag, but it was very narrow. Um, and if you missed it, the rough the rough was pretty sticky. Um, around that green. I mean, they've made it really severe now. The you know, 16th green, if you miss it, especially back, um, is is really tough. But it was tough, tough back then. And I and I made a decision just to just to hit a really committed nine iron into the middle of the green, and uh, that was going to leave me, you know, maybe a 20 foot, 25 foot putt. But I was happy with that. Um, I remember watching the coverage afterwards, actually, and I think it was Peter Alice, you know, saying I, you know, come up a club short there or. You know, must have misstruck it or whatever, but um, that was actually my my plan was to was, was to not get too aggressive on sixteen. So, uh, you know, I did what I wanted to do. I hit it, hit it into the middle of the green there, left myself a chance, um, which I didn't make, uh, but that was fine. And then, obviously, seventeen, eighteen, you know, kind of anything could happen, really. But with Angel Cabrera's length, you know, I knew that. You know he can, uh, as it was back then, seventeen and eighteen. You know he can reach with with a couple of two irons, and uh, it was a little bit more bit more tricky for me. But um, he, I mean, he, I think he ripped a two iron down seventeen and, and left himself a, a chance. Um, I hit my, I was hitting a three wood down down the right of seventeen, which is a, you know, it's a tough tough tee shot. It was a tough tee shot then. It's a really tough tee shot now because, um, you know, it's, it's so long. They've added 50 yards or whatever to the 17. And my plan was always to try and hit hit it down the right side of the the rough and the trees where you see most people bail out and just try and draw it back to the to the fairway. Um, but it's safe if you miss down the right. You've generally got a shot. And I it didn't quite come back. I was in the rough and I got a really heavy lie. Um, I was only able to sort of dig it forward, get it to the brow of the hill. Uh, and I still had an eight iron in. Um, pin was back left. Angel had got it up near the green, maybe on the green in two. Um, and I hit an eight iron in there, and it was it was probably it was a little bit of an edgy shot because it was because it was a, a back left pin. If you missed it left, you got no room to work with. And I kind of kind of bailed on it a little bit into the right side of the green, left myself forty feet probably, and. Um, Funny enough, the putt which I hold across the green, which went in at a little bit of pace, um, it is a putt that a lot of people remember um, when they talk to me. They say, "I remember you drained, you know, drained a huge putt near the end on 17." And uh, 
and I did, and it was, um, yeah, I mean, that was that was a little bit of a that was quite a surreal moment at that point because I think Angle had made a you know a very simple um, birdie, and I'd sort of battled my way down the hole from not not hitting a particularly poor tee shot, but you just get a really heavy line and you can't move it too far forward, and then all of a sudden you're not going into that green with a wedge, which you'd really like to do when it's a tight pin. Um, so to hold that putt across 17 was was, um, was pretty special, and you know the raw that was the first real roar from a crowd that that, that I can remember that um, that I'd ever had because, like I say, we hadn't had huge crowds out there with us for the majority of the round, and it was really building, um, and nothing too exciting had kind of happened on 15 and 16, but 17 with that putt going in across, and um, you know there was a huge roar, and it was. And it was a real buzz and, um, you know, it kept me in the game. And as, as I didn't, I didn't actually know at the time going to 18, but I was one ahead, um, with the 18th to negotiate. And again, par five dog legging the opposite way to 17 and knowing that Angel could hit a couple of irons and get on my, my plan had always been with 17 and 18 that I was going to hit three wood. And if I really flushed it, and got myself in a good position, then I'd go for the green. If I didn't, I'd try and leave myself my number of, of 100, which is what I wanted. And, you know, that's had been working well for me as a, a wedge number that week. So Angel had, you know, again, he bombed two iron down there. You know, he was going to be able to reach. I leaked my three wood a little bit right in the right rough. Um, and it was too difficult a shot to try and take on. And I think I hit... I mean, I hit six iron again from from the rough, and it wasn't light rough. It was still a bit thick, but I tried to hit six iron and leave myself a hundred yards, and I think I had ninety seven in there uh, when I got up there. Angel had hit it short left in two uh, with another two iron or a three iron. So it was, uh, you know, then it came to the potentially the biggest shot of my career. Then from ninety seven yards into that eighteenth green, pin was pin was back. Um, back left side again. It was probably about 15 feet of green behind the pin. And, uh, and I hit a great a great gap wedge um, or a 53, whatever it was, in there. Controlled it in, put it about 12 feet directly behind the flag. Um, that, that was a huge shot for me. Um, again, still not fully knowing, you know, what was going on. Um, but assuming that Angel's going to make four. And he played a really clumsy chip, actually. Um, and he, he knocked it about 18 feet past, and then he left his putt six foot short, uh, six inches short, uh, in the jaws down the hill. He left it short, um, and I had a little 12 footer, 11, 12 foot left to right. Um, and Kev said to me, you know, to uh, we were looking at it, and the greens, the greens were still pretty slick because um, uh, they were pretty dry. And Kev said to me, you know, two two putts is good. Um, but you, you know, you're welcome to hold it. So uh, I was, you know, I, I was totally game faced then. I was, I was, um, I was aware of the surroundings um, and the crowds and the grandstand, which you know was huge for what it was at the time. Obviously, they, they've kind of doubled all of those grandstands now around 18. It's you know, it's really huge. Um, and I managed to roll it in, you know, and um, uh, and then it just. Uh, I don't know. It was, it was that my dad came running onto the green. You know, I remember he gave me a hug and he said, you know, you've made my life. Um, cause he just lived, he played golf until he got injured when he was about 52 and he got me into the game. 
and literally he had to stop playing. So he kind of lived his golf through me and, you know, had always supported me from the age of 12 when I said I wanted to, you know, try and be a tour player. So um, it, it was great that he was there and Claire was there behind the green with Kira and it was, uh, it was the fairy tale, you know, it was, um, it really was. Well, look, the fairy the fairy tale was t- capped off in some ways by you being the oldest ever winner of the Rookie of the Year award. <laughs> Did you know that? I didn't know that. Yeah, Is that you, true? You know, you won the Rookie of the Year award. You're you're the oldest winner of the Rookie of the Year award. Right. Okay. All right. That. I'll add that to my list of accolades. Then. <laughs> Congratulations for being the only thirty year old to win a Rookie of the Year. Wow. There we go. But that's a great award to win, and then and obviously your career then. We know, I'll be very honest, you haven't, you didn't have the finish to your career that you wanted in some respects. No. We, you, you, we can talk about that in a moment. But you did now have a next good few exciting years. So I know Jay's got a couple of questions about the majors and a, and a, and a great story. So I'll let Jay take it away. Uh, yeah, just to uh, close out Wentworth first, uh, you know, to me, one of the uh, greatest parts about that course is that there's so many things that can happen on the, those last two holes. Uh, to me, you know, 17, that tee shot, whenever I see it on uh, TV, it, it like keeps me up at night. Like there, there's just, just with, with the out of bounds left. Uh, when I played it on the simulator, I, I haven't played it in real, uh, real life, but every single tee shot that I have with that sort of visual, I'm, I'm always bailing. Right. So I, I, I totally understand that. And then, uh, the the fact that 18, you have to play that that hole differently. Like, you know, you want to play a draw on 17 and then you want to play a fade on 18. Like, that's really some of the beauty of that particular course. Uh, part of the reason why, uh, you know, no matter what the lead is, like, you always realize you have to. I've seen a lot of big numbers on those two holes. So it's, it's like you just never know exactly what what's gonna uh gonna happen those last couple holes so no impressive finish finish uh uh, finishing birdie birdie so that was that was amazing yeah i mean i think they um you know they used to love the finish the the fact that it could be and and to be honest these days even with the increased length as you know the the guys are hitting it so far that they're if they're bombing it into position they're able to make three but it was always the fact that you could finish three 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 um at wentworth and that could that could alter a tournament dramatically, um, as we know. Um, and you could also finish quite easily with three doubles. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of drama that can happen over those few holes. So uh, you win uh, at that that point. It's obviously still the flagship event of the uh, Europe, European Tour. It kind of puts you in a position to obviously, you know, you're – World ranking, I think it went, uh, it went through uh, through the stratosphere. Like I think it puts you like in the top hundred, basically. So uh, you got access to a lot of the made major championships, um, uh, and then also put you on the a radar for the Ryder Cup that uh, later that year. Was was any of that going through your mind, like playing in the majors or you know maybe make, making the Ryder Cup, like? Were these things that were even like um, in the realm of possibility when when you uh, finished up? Well, I think you know. I think it was mentioned um, when I they did my interview, you know, afterwards and presented me with a trophy for the for the TV section, and um, they said, you know, you've moved up to whatever thirteen in the rankings um, now on the Ryder Cup, 
and um, you know what you feel about that and I said you know uh, it's amazing I said you know I've not um, I've not given any thought to the, to the Ryder Cup this year other than having had a few jokes with my friends saying you know if you win a couple of these big tournaments then who knows you know you can make the team uh, I could make the team and uh, I said but I've given it no more thought than that and um, I kind of, at the time, I, I thought, okay, you know, I've um, each step of my journey along from amateur golf into mini tour rankings, you know, when I turned pro, working my way to challenge tour to main tour, uh, I'd had victories and I'd kind of proved myself, if you like, with that, that proved to myself that I could win. And winning on tour, I always felt I could do it. Now I'd done it. I wasn't going to put, you know, a huge amount of pressure on myself to try and make the Ryder Cup team. Um, I just wanted to keep doing what I was doing. Yes, I had some great opportunities now, like you say, um, getting into some majors and the world events. Uh, and if I'd thrown, you know, another big win in or a couple of really good performances, then then I might, might have just snuck the team. Um, so it, it started to be on the radar because it was being talked about. Um, but I kind of deflected that from myself by, by saying, you know, that wasn't what I was thinking about at the start of the year. And uh, I wasn't going to put undue pressure on myself to, to, to make the team. It, it's interesting because I look back now, you know, 19 years later, and uh, part of me, sometimes I say to myself, perhaps I should have put some pressure on myself to, to make the team, you know, and I might have. Um, I finished the year okay. You know, I didn't, um, I think, in fact, I, I think I only had one more top 10, which was in the final event, the Valderrama top 60, um, top 60 event. Uh, Volvo Masters um, but I played okay um, and maybe you know maybe if I had put some more pressure on myself I, I think now but you know we'll never know um, I did what I felt I needed to do at the time to, to deflect a little bit of pressure um, and I felt like I didn't really have anything to, to prove to anyone um, or prove to myself because you know I, I, I believed I could win at each level and I had um, but it would have been great. I mean, I remember going at Firestone for the uh, Bridgestone Invitational that I played um, uh, the week. Then it was the week after the uh, USPGA. Um, anyone who was in or close to the team, we got invited to a dinner with Bernard Langer, um, who was the captain that year. So I was invited along to a, to a dinner, um, quite a casual thing, really, at, at the golf club at, at Firestone. And uh, and that was great, you know, to be to be part of that, where you know you're in consideration, and um, that was before the tournament started that week. And obviously, you know, a win or a second or a third in that event um, would have given me massive points as well and moved me up there. Um, so it was it was nice to feel feel part of it, um, but at the same time, you know, it was another or it was one of those moments in in 2004 where. At times, I sat there for a few seconds, and it and it was a little bit surreal. <laughs> no, I can imagine. Like, yeah, there. Uh, you know, we we kind of talk in the professional golf world about those uh, sort of life changing moments. Like, that's that's kind of some something that a lot of golf fans we we kind of live to see, and you really live that that out. Like, you know, winning a tournament, you know, changed the uh, whole complexion of your season of your career where you all of a sudden have access to these events potentially that's uh you know really really exciting um you know as the 
uh, Ryder Cup gets closer and you sort of, sort of get included in uh, various team dinners and such. Um, and then the uh, Ryder Cup selection comes about and you're not part of it, uh, part of the actual team. Um, you want to talk through just uh, maybe was there like a lot of uh, were you, was it upsetting or disappointing in in some some way? Because obviously we we kind of are uh, seeing that uh, play out now uh, with someone like Adrian Moronk, who who's actually in great position to to potentially win the uh, BMW PGA. You know, he's clearly kind of the one guy that that was uh, sort of on the outside look uh, looking in, and uh, you know he. You know, really, for all intents and purposes, in my mind, deserves a spot on that, that team. So, do you want to just just kind of talk through, like, was was there a feeling of disappointment, or was it just so cool that you were like involved in the process and that that you were there for consideration? Just kind of talk through your feelings there. Yeah, I think um, obviously I put myself in a position, albeit an outside position. Um, and like you say, I got invited to to some of the the, the gatherings. Um, so you feel that that it's close, but for me, I knew you know I needed another big win. Um, I wasn't going to get a pick uh, for obvious reasons. Um, I was going to have to pay, play my way into the team. Um, and like I say, I hadn't really put any pressure on myself to to make the team. Yes, you know, I knew in the back of my mind if I if I had a um, you know, another great victory or back-to-back, you know, top weeks um, in that world event at Firestone and the week before the USPGA, that would have, you know, put me close. But um, I knew that was my position. So, you know, very, very different to, to, to where Adrian Moronk is uh, right now. So for me, there wasn't disappointment. Um, there was disappointment that I hadn't won um, another big tournament or played well enough to make the team. The fact that I'd given myself half a chance um, but yeah, I, I don't remember being um, being particularly disappointed um, or expecting that you know I should have made it. Um, whereas Adrian Moronk has has played you know great golf for the last sixteen months or whatever. He's third on the race to Dubai. Like you say, he's in a great position to win this week at Wentworth, um, and he played pretty solid last week in uh, in Ireland. Uh, I'd love to see him win this week. If I'm honest, um, I think he's been really hard done by. Um, Aberg is a is obviously a great talent, a huge talent for the future, um, or a huge talent right now, and and is potentially going to be around a long time. You know, we say that about players, um, and it doesn't always work out. You know, look at Matteo Manassero. You know, he was a world beater, youngest ever winner of the PGA, and, and phenomenal. And uh, and it didn't work out for him, although he's great to see him. You know, on his way back. Um, so I kind of feel that um, Moronk's been really hard done by with uh, with the Ryder Cup, and I feel for him. And I, I you know, uh, for that reason alone, I would love to see him pick up the PGA Championship this week. Completely agree. Uh, yeah, I definitely think you know I kind of go back and, f- and forth. Like I've done a little bit of Ryder Cup research over the last you know few months, and uh, you know just seeing how things have evolved from like having all the these qualifiers and, and only like. Uh, two picks to now where you have like six picks there is this like uh, sort of happy medium that i think we we uh, sort of uh are not there where there's way too many picks because i do feel like 
there is like a qualification process. There is this like thing to like earning a spot on that team uh, where, you know, if you do have too many picks, you do wind up, wind up skipping guys that like uh, really should be on the, on the team. So it's kind of a, a tricky situation. And, and uh, my hope is that in the long term, we uh, sort of figure out uh, like there, there's some sort of handshake agreement, but between the U.S. and the European team, that that uh, uh, because I I do think that the U.S. team, like uh, for the longest time, they they were going by you know uh, as many qualifiers as possible, and then because Europe had a lot more captains picks, then the U.S. felt like they had to have more captains picks. So I'm hoping that we get get to the point where everybody ag- agrees to a, a certain amount of qualifying spots more qualifying spots than, than picks. And then maybe we only have like, like maybe one or two captains picks like that seems like the way to go because this particular year, there's, there's been so much um, aggravation around the selection process that, that we we've all noticed. So uh, yeah, like we, we could talk to you about the, the Ryder cup and, and everything all, um, all day. Uh, I did want to move uh, to obviously you uh, played in the open. Uh, I think it was four times, um, and I knew you had a really good Tom Watson story that I got tipped off to. So, um, if you want to share uh, share that, that would, that'd be awesome. Yeah, no, happy to. Um, yeah, I played in four opens, so my win my win at Wentworth got me um, five years exemption for the tour, and it got me three years into the open. So. Uh, I played four, five, and six, and then I qualified in uh, 07 at Carnoustie. Um, 04 was Troon, my first Open, which was obviously really exciting, um, but actually not a particularly memorable course for me um, in terms of particular enjoyment. Um, I was excited because it was my first Open, but I wasn't that enamoured with the course, if I'm honest. Um, it's the, open, it's the only open venue that I've played, so I, uh, that's the only okay. point of point of reference that I have. So, <laughs> right, I've I've played it. Not a fan. I love I, it. Look, it's a good course. It's it's two night. It's two night. Well, you've got to play more of them. It's not. It's not for me. It, if you had to rank all the open venues, it's the, it's the bottom one. It's a it's two different nines in it. Drum. It just doesn't yeah. feel. It feels like one good nine and one okay yeah, nine. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good way to sum it up. And um, uh, you know, obviously, you know, everyone's going to have a different opinion, and um, and that's fine. But for me, it wasn't um, it wasn't a really memorable course um, that I that I really enjoyed. And maybe it's you know first time there, and it's maybe because I just didn't play very well. Um, you know, as simple as that. But O um, five was St Andrews, and. Um, you know, I love St. Andrews. I, I didn't like it so much as a teenager when I was playing amateur event called the St. Andrews Lynx Trophy. I used to think it was quite unfair. Um, and I wasn't a huge fan of Lynx golf at that time. I, I just felt there could be too much unfairness. Um, and as a teenager, you know, I, I wasn't into that. And it wasn't really until, you know, I started to obviously have my card and played the Dunhill Lynx Championship. And then I thought, okay, you know, I can see this, you know, the big staging and whatever, and I'm in, more into it. But it was really playing the Open in 2005 where I totally fell in love with with St. Andrews. Um, uh, the place, um, you know, the town and the golf course. Seeing it for what it was, you know, it was an, a, a big Open Championship and it was, you know, it was a bit burnt out. It was special because it was Jack Nicklaus's final um, final open, and he had his five pound notes, and he was 
really kindly signing them all for us in the locker room, which was great. Um, and I had a practice round with Phil Mickelson uh, on the Wednesday, which was great. So, I, you know, I was I was loving that week. Uh, the weather was great. And then, yeah, on to the Tom Watson story. So basically I made the cut on the mark um, and it was literally with the last group coming in on, on Friday night. So we didn't we didn't know until about nine o'clock, quarter past nine maybe, um, that we'd made the cut and we were in. And then I got the draw through and I'm playing with Tom Watson and uh, I thought, okay, that's cool. Um, personally, not one of my idols because obviously I'm, you know, slightly different era, full respect for his career. Um, but I'd never been a huge follower, if you like, of, of Tom Watson, whereas my coach, Keith Williams, he was almost beside himself because it was like, you know, he was his hero. Um, so to, to be drawn with Tom was great. And uh, I thought, right, I'm going to look forward to that, you know, just for the fact that I'm playing and I'm playing with, a you know, an absolute legend of the game. And I'd heard he was a really, really nice guy. So uh, Saturday morning comes around. We're out pretty early, obviously one of the first groups. And um, I can see Tom's gone to the, the first tee um, ahead of me. So uh, I make my way over, introduce myself. And, uh, you know, he's very polite. I'm Tom, really nice to meet you. And I said, yeah, you know, yeah, pleasure to meet you too. And uh, he said, let's go low and get get amongst these leaders, shall we? And uh, I thought, that's a pretty cool statement. You know, he's he's up for this. And uh, and he played great. I mean, he was hitting it solid and he was really getting the ball out there, um, you know, with a bit of help from the, the ground conditions. Um, and we got out to number nine, eight, par four, seventh hole. Um, before the par three eighth. So um, we've both played into the green and I've hit it to about 20 feet. He's hit it to about 15. So Caddy stood at the back of the green with the referee that's with every match. Um, some people may not know there's a there's a, uh, a guy who rakes the bunkers or, or a lady who rakes the bunker and there's a referee with every game. So they're stood at the back of the green heading towards the eighth tee. Um, I roll my 20-foot birdie putt up, whole side, tap it in, go and stand with Kev at the back of the green. And we're chatting away. Tom's got his 15-foot um, birdie putt up and coming. And so we're chatting away quietly. He misses the putt. He taps it in. So we start to walk off, turn our backs, start to walk off to, to the eighth tee. And Kev's talking to me something about the approach shot to the last. Um, and we're talking about it, and then we turn around just to look back down the fairway for where we're talking about, where we've just played in. And Tom Watson is back at 15 feet, having another putt. So we kind of stop in our tracks, and we look at each other in disbelief. And uh, and I say to Kev, what the hell is he doing? And Kev's like, I don't know. He's like... This is this could be really awkward, and I'm thinking it's Tom Watson here, and uh, he's having a practice putt. What am I going to do? So the referees kept walking, and he's up on the tee. So um, Kev says, "Let's just go to the tee and and uh, and speak to the ref." So we walk up to the tee, and I try and be all casual and say to the ref, uh, "I noticed that Tom went back and." replayed his his birdie putt there and he said 
Yeah, yeah. He said, that's uh, it's a rule of the championship. You're allowed to do that. If there's nobody waiting to play into the green, if the group behind are not waiting. So uh, we're both like, obviously really relieved um, that we're not going to have to try and speak to Tom about it. And there's no penalty, but, but also shocked that, you know, we didn't know that rule. So uh, we've sort of had a little bit of a laugh to ourselves. Anyway, we tee off. Uh, Tom comes walking up there and we, and we tee off. So we start to walk down, down the eighth. And uh, I said to Tom, I said, um, you know, you almost gave me a heart attack then back on uh, before we teed off. And he's like, why? What's, you know, what's that? And I said, well, I said, we were just chatting away after you tapped in, you know, your par putt. And we looked back and you were, you were having another putt on the green. And um, we didn't know that was the rule of the championship. And he said, son, he said, when you've played as many championships as me, he said, you'll know all the rules. And he walked off. And it was, um, yeah, we had a laugh about it. But yeah, at the time, you know, when Kev and I first turned around and saw him there putting, um, you know, the, the look on, I, I saw the look on Kev's face and he must have seen the look on mine. And we were just like, you know, what the hell are we going to do here? Um, but it all worked out fine. There you go. You know, you, you, it just shows you need to read the full literature that you get given when you play a tournament. Hey? I think it's a, it's a story I've heard you tell a few times. And I, the amount, I don't know anyone ever who knew that before you tell them. I've never. I've heard you tell it three or four times. I know 70, 80 people have heard, no, maybe 120 have heard that story and no one knew that was a rule. So I, I love that little story because I imagine, I, I can't imagine anyone listening, perhaps maybe one or two real golf. And you're a golf sad OJ like me and you didn't know that, did you? I, when you, you were tell, telling the story, I was like, oh my God, uh, is Tom Watson getting DQ'd from the, from this Open Championship? I, I didn't know. So no, yeah, no, no idea. No idea. All right, well, let's move on to the lighter section because we could talk forever. Um, just give me give me two minutes on what the last sort of four or five years have looked like for you with with Ben running um, running golf uh, golf partnership and all that because that's that's been a different stage of your career. And then give me another two minutes on what the next couple of years are going to look like going on to the seniors tour, and then we'll move on to some of the light hearted stuff that that Jay and I like to do at the end. Okay, um, yeah. So last four or five years, like you say. Um, reaching mid forties, um, realizing I'm not going to get my tour card back. Um, as much as that, that hurts because that's, you know, the place to be is out playing on tour with your mates, great golf courses, following the sunshine, you know, playing for some good money. Um, you know, what's not to love. It's, it's great. Um, but there comes a point you've got to move on. Um, and I kind of moved on and you've got to find your place. What am I going to do? Um, until I reach 50, which seems, you know, seemed a long way off and still feels weird to talk about it being next year. But I needed to find something um, that I was going to do. And a um, good friend of, of, of ours, Ben, um, another Ben, uh, Ben Hortop, he had his own little business going, golf partnership. He's a PGA pro. So kind of joined, joined Ben really on a whole variety of things in and around golf, um, running some of our own events, using our networks that we've, we've built up um, over 20-odd, 30-odd years playing golf to raise some money for some, some investments, uh, which have been some of them golf-related, some of them you know, completely not related to golf. Um, but kind of using those, those golfing networks that we've built up to um, facilitate introductions and you know, try and earn some money that way, um, brokering some deals. Um, but also having some fun doing our own events, pro-ams, celebrity-ams, 
um, and things like that. So that's kind of kept me busy, as well as keeping my own hand in playing some regional PGA golf um, and some other, you know, any kind of pro-am and stuff I can get into um, just to keep myself competitive because I do enjoy competing. You know, I love, I don't play a lot of social golf. Um, for me, I generally go, I practice, I, you know, play generally on my own, working on my game, and then I'm happy to go off and, and play competitive. Um, that's, that's generally what I do. So I've been keeping my hand in doing that for four or five years, like you say, then, um, and the next chapter for me, uh, my birthday is May 29 next year. That's when I turn 50. That's when I'm eligible for the senior seniors in Europe, the Legends Tour. So that that um, you know that is beckoning me, and um, I'm looking forward to competing against you know a lot of my old mates that uh, we played against each other on tour. Um, it should be fun, but but highly competitive, and uh, it'll be nice to play some tournaments that are three four days as well, rather than playing one and two day events. Um, I feel I'm more of a, a player that puts a you know puts a tournament together over a few days rather than goes out and shoots you know sixty two or fifty eight whatever you got to shoot these days you know. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. I may have a bash at trying to qualify for Champions Tour in the States as well. I know there's only going to be four spots, I think. So it's a tough, uh, it's a tough gig. But if you don't try, you'll never know. You know, it'd be great to go over and play in the States for a couple of years. They've obviously played for some really good money and their tournaments are structured differently. So they, they have their pro-ams before the tournament and then it's, you know, pros only. Whereas in, in Europe, a lot of the events you play in Pro-Am Alliance, um, which is a little bit, um, you know, of a touchy subject for some guys. Some some like it, some don't. Um, but either way, yeah, that's that's me. I'm out there next year playing a bit more full time, but but still working on some projects with Ben. We've got you know one exciting project that we're just about to try and raise some investment for, which will be um, golf related, kind of uh, luxury lifestyle and golf. So uh, I've enjoyed the business side of things, you know, the last 10 years or so getting involved in business. I, I did business studies at, at A-level. Um, so I've always had a kind of keen interest in business and, and that's been good. Um, and I'd like to keep that going because, again, you never just never know when you might get an injury um, or something might happen and, um, you know, the tour's not around or there's not enough money to make out on the tour to keep yourself going. So, you know, I don't want to put all my eggs in that, in that playing basket um, I want to keep something else on, on the go, but at the same time, yeah, you know, really excited for, for getting out and competing again. That's brilliant. And I think, I think having played a couple of times with you and I, I, I remember when I told my uncle that I was playing golf with you and he was amazed. Like he obviously, I think, I think you've met uncle Bob, but he was doing the photography at one of my company golf days. Mate. That's right. And um, when he found out I was, oh, and I remember he, he hit my iron on that, on that hole and nearly killed that lady. You remember that on the, on the, on the 11th at Castle Coon? Oh uh, yeah. yeah. He, he, he took my extra, t- extra stiff shaft and had no idea what he, and Bob plays off of eight. He's a good golfer, but he's, he's gone from hitting soft shaft, really soft shaft and extra stiff shaft, nearly killed a lady. I'm walking in a public highway. Um, but, when I told him I was playing with you, he was amazing. And I, I remember going back and I rang him on the way. I was like, I just played with Scott. And he said, what was it like? I went, he didn't hit a good shot all day and shot one under. Like, and he was absolutely brilliant. Like, you didn't, hit a, you didn't hit a shot all day where I went, oh my God, that's amazing. But you shot one under. It's absolutely incredible. That was at Remedy Oak. And I'm like, that's the difference between world-class golfers and good golfers. You just, 
all you did was just go, that's a fairway, that's a green, that's a fairway, that's a green, that's a fairway, that's a green. I know one or two per all day. Like it was just, that's the difference. And you play with players that like, like yourselves and other great places that that ease, you can shoot one under without ever going full flare. It's just brilliant. It's boring as well though. Oh, I'd love to have a bit of boring golf every now and again. <laughs> no, no, boring golf is the best. It really is. Like that's when I'm I'm playing my best is when I, I don't have have to worry about out of bounds and stuff like that. I'm 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 just playing cons- uh, consistent and like my floor is so much higher when it, when I'm playing well. The uh, I, I'm obviously not a, not a professional, and part of the reason is because my floor can be very very low <laughs> like my my ceiling can can be pretty high like i, I could shoot uh you know in the 60s but yeah when my uh when i'm playing bad my my floor is really really low so you know the old phrase what's better than a lucky bounce not needing one that's that that that, <laughs> yeah. that is so true right jay let's get into the fun part not that the rest haven't yeah, been perfect. fun but you got your question <laughs> then i've got four and then scott we're gonna do it we're gonna do a little bit on tiger woods and, and the video so rather than us end this and me and jay come back on and record it do you want to stay with us for five minutes and talk about tiger being back and chipping you happy to stay with us for five more minutes yeah, let's go. Brilliant. For it, yeah. So, Jay, go with your question. These questions, Scott, are ones we ask every single guest. They have these this question off Jay, and then they have the same four questions off me. Okay. So uh, let's say, and uh, you you have to exclude yourself from uh, from this. So let's say oh. you you had one major to give out, one major champ- championship. You're a golfing god. You're going to give it to a deserving player, either a current or a past player that hasn't won this particular championship. It could be a player that hasn't won a major. It could be a player that uh, uh, has one but uh, just has like a, a hole in their resume. If you had one major to, to give out to one player, who would it be and uh, what's the championship? I think it would have to be Lee Westwood. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people would, um, would be very, would have been very happy to see Lee win, you know, me for one, um, grew up playing amateur golf with Lee, you know, shared a room with him on my first England boys trip abroad. Um, so known him a long time as well as playing county golf against him when we were kind of 14, 15. Um, you know, Lee's come very close as we know in, you know, in most of the majors, um, if not all of them. Um, and I think uh, because I'm just giving him one major, um, I'd like to think he would take the Open Championship. Um, and, uh, you know, that would... I feel he's deserved a major. He's, he, he has, well, nobody deserves. I mean, you know, you, uh, you get what you get, right, when you play, when you play sports. Um, sometimes the breaks go for you, sometimes they go against you. And, um, but he's put himself in a position, you know, so many times as we know, and, and we all know he is a good enough player to be classed as a, as a major winner. So uh, for me, it would be Lee Westwood and the Open Championship. Yeah. Great answer. Uh, Jerry Foltz actually had the same answer, and um, I uh, tend to completely agree. <laughs> so so I, I, I probably got like like three or four different an- answers that depending on the data that it is, I have a different, different take, but no, it's a great answer. So, yeah. So into the fun, silly ones, club yeah. in your bag, you love and you hate. 
I think it's the putter. I mean, you, you mentioned it earlier. Um, I, I love my putter. I I feel I'm a good putter. I feel I know I know I'm a good putter actually. Um, if that's if I can say that, you know, I am quite modest. You've won the biggest tournaments that. in the world. You can say you're uh, a good putter. That is allowed. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it is hard. Um, I've, I've never, I've always putted better on quick greens. So I know if I go somewhere and the greens are a bit slower, it's hard for me. I find it hard to mentally get myself to hit them, even though I'm telling myself. And, you know, I've done it recently in a couple of sort of smaller events and pro-ams where um, the greens have been good, but a little bit slow. And I just, you know, I leave the first two or three putts in the jaws just short. Um, and I tell myself, I'm not going to, that's the last one I'm going to leave short today. Um, but I still do it, uh, even on the 18th. So um, at, at days like that, I hate my putter, um, but I love my putter because I generally feel every time I get on the green, I, I feel I'm good at reading greens, which um, which gives me a great you know chance to make putts. Um, and I generally feel really confident whenever I'm on the green that I can make a putt from wherever. Um, and for that reason, I love it um, as well. Okay, so we've just finished a lovely round of golf. Um, having played at Remedy with you, I know what your choice was then, but we're going to go for something different. Maybe you can choose whatever you want. What drink do you want? Alcoholic, non-alcoholic, which drink is it? And what food are we getting? Um, if it's been a nice warm day, um, I find a lager shandy really refreshing. Um, so I'm quite happy to, to get one of those in quickly. A nice um, quick lager shandy like that. Yeah, quick large shandy. If if it's um if it's somewhere a bit more civilized or you're with people who are um who are perhaps not drinking, then I like a gunners, which uh you know a lot of golf clubs do. Very sort of Sunningdale traditional sort of drink. Is that an American say, thing, or... Jay? Do you have gunners over there? Oh, it's a very British golf club thing. Mm. Never heard of it. Never heard of it. You've got to try one the next time you're over. It's okay. it's an amazing drink. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Um I'll let Ben tell you more about that uh, later on. But um, and what are we eating? Well, we had those massive prawn sandwiches last time, didn't we? With a, with a big bowl of um, we had that big bowl of chili cheese chips. That went, that's yeah, right. With massive prawn sandwiches yeah. each, and then this massive portion of chili yeah. cheese chips. Yeah. You know, I have to say that I um, there's one thing I do uh, sometimes a bit subconsciously, I guess, but I generally. When I go to a golf club, I like to try their club sandwich. And I do have a little bit of a, you know, I, I rate a club on its club sandwich, uh, rightly or wrongly. Um, that's correct. You that, know, is a, that is the right thing yeah. to do. Yeah, that's, yeah, okay. So that's good. I'm not weird. And um, their Caesar salad. If they've got a chicken Caesar salad, those two for me are how I'm going to rate you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, more so the, the club sandwich for me. I, would, I, I find it hard to go past that on a menu. Um, even if I've been there and I know what it's like, you know, generally, well, if it's a, if it's a poor one, but I, I can't really remember having poor club sandwiches, to be honest with you. All the clubs these days, they seem to do a phenomenal club sandwich. Um, and then it's just hard to go past that on the menu and choose anything else. Okay. Your day's not gone to plan. You've got 90 minutes spare. Are you going to have nine holes on your own or hit the range for 90 minutes? Ooh. Um, I'd probably hit the range, I think. Yeah. 
that's yeah. such a 50 50 like it's it i just know yeah. i know it, we, when we do 100 of these interviews we'll go back and it'll be 50 50 or 49 51 it's so interesting how people are just split on that yeah yeah it's uh, i mean i enjoy i guess it maybe it comes down a little bit to how much you enjoy you know just beating balls and, and trying to find it in the dirt you know um for me i do i, I enjoy practicing um i enjoy working on my game I enjoy working on different ball flights and things. So, you know, 90 minutes on the range is okay for me. Okay. The last question, I know one part of this answer, but it's yours to give. So I I, I won't act surprised. I know it. Your favorite golf course you've played on tour slash as a, in a professional event and your favorite course that isn't a course that you've played in a professional event. Okay. Um, Whistling Straits. Yeah, that's the one I knew. But tell us a little yeah. bit about that. You love that course. You, 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 when I start, you only got one minute because yeah. I know if I let you do twenty-five okay. on Whistling Straits, you will. Yeah, no, yeah, no. I'll keep it brief. Yeah, so I mean, my first USPGA was at Whistling Straits, two thousand and four. First time the course was used, I think, for for a big championship. And um, yeah, I just thought it was amazing. Loved everything about it. Reminded me a lot um, at times of Kings Barnes. Uh, up in Scotland, which is, you know, on the edge of the water as well. Fantastic. Um, so, yeah, even even if I took away the fact that it was the US PGA Championship and my my one and only US major that I played, um, it would still be my favourite course that I played on tour. And then your favourite course that's not a tour course? Favourite course that's not a tour course? Um, that's a real tough one, actually. Um, I've got a lot of, I've got a lot of favourites, um, and I think you know a few of them, but um, I mean, Sunning- Sunningdale, old and new are great, but Sunningdale's obviously has been a tour course, so I'll try and leave that one out of it. I'm a huge fan of Little Aston. Oh, what a uh, course in the Midlands! What a course! Yeah, I I, I love Little Aston, um, and and very close behind that in the same area would be Blackwell. Yeah, great course. Um, yeah, I I, I really. You know, I love Lynx Golf. I love Heathland. I, I love all types of golf courses. Um, but as a uh, as a as a teenager and a and a young pro, you know, I particularly liked Parkland courses. And um, yeah, Little Aston is. Uh, you know, I, I won't give up an opportunity to go and play Little Aston. That's for sure. I had to miss out on a charity day there last week. Oh, I was gutted. I just couldn't. I couldn't make it work. Don't don't cry for me. I was playing golf somewhere else, but like it was, yeah, you know, I was gutted not to go. I, I've not played Little Aston this year. It's the first year in the last three I've not played it, so gutted. Right. Um, right. So let's move on. Thank you for that, Scott. And I was huge going to join us. And I know we said that you're going to come back a couple of times over the next year and talk a bit about that Legends Tour. It'd be really good. Yeah, love yeah, to. It'd be yeah. really good to get some feedback on that and see how you grey how you grey Ed monsters get on with it. That's 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 the important thing. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> but more importantly, yeah, no, now, I, I want to hear more about that. That too, really interesting. Yeah, you know, it's different. Sorry, we're like we're trying to as a golf podcast to cover more areas of golf, and we could just talk PGA and live all day if we wanted to, and we will talk a lot of PGA and live, and we're going to talk about Tiger in a minute, which encompasses the world of golf. But I think that having having reflections on the Legends Tour, where there are so many well known names and so many players playing at the end of their career, which is a very weird thing to say because people play on the Legends Tour and the Senior Tour now for 15, 20 years, and they're shooting, they're shooting 65, 68 from 6,800 yards. It's like, which it's, it, the fact, despite the fact they're 60, they're still able to absolutely get it round. It's, yeah, it's, um, 
I think it's going to be really interesting to hear more about that, Scott. I really do. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I'd be delighted to tell you about that. Tiger, obviously he's had a very storied career. There's no need to say anything more. He's just been one of, the, one of one, one A or one B of the greatest golf ever, whether you're a Jack or a Tiger, you can choose. I don't mind. I can hear and understand arguments for both. Um, had some personal issues we know about, some stuff that he's kind of brought on himself. And that's really sad because often you do find some geniuses are, are tormented. But I was really happy to see him back walking and hitting hitting balls the other day. What 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 do you feel, Scott? Do you feel that he's do you feel he can win again? Do you feel he can contend again? Let's say that he's he's got this 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 foot, this plantar issue's been fixed. We saw him win the Masters in 2019, the range gone blank. 2019, the range gone blank. Yeah, it was. We saw him win that post the back issues. Can he win again? Uh, I mean, my, my head says no, but my kind of heart says he's the, he's the one player you can never, never say never. Um, I agree. It was great to see him back, you know, chipping some balls. Um, I mean, he's 48 now and... Um, 2019, although it's only you know four coming up five years ago, it's still quite a quite a bit between the age of you know 43 and 48 uh, with what he's been through. So um, we'd all like to see him back. I think it's uh, it's an interesting one because you know when the, the trouble sort of started and he disappeared off the tour, and you kind of think, how's the tour going to survive? But um, and how am I going to enjoy the golf as much? But you. You kind of move on, don't you, to the to the next lot of players, whether it's reluctantly or, or not, um, and that you know you then get consumed in the in the the other players and the new players, and then he came back and then he's disappeared again, and it's um, it's kind of the same thing, and and it's I guess it's a little bit like with the live the live stuff, you know, which we haven't talked about, but um, you know, there, there's a there's a three or four players there that I quite miss watching. Um, you know, playing the PGA Tour. Um, but the rest of them, you know, you just kind of, oh, yeah, you know, you hear a name and you think, oh, yeah, oh, actually, he's playing Liv. That's why I don't really see him anymore. Um, you know, because I, I personally, I don't I don't particularly watch the, the Liv stuff. Not that I'm against it in any way. I just don't particularly enjoy watching the programming. But um, I would I would love to see Tiger make some kind of comeback. Can he win again? That's that that is a really really tall order. I've heard, I've heard um, I've heard that there's rumblings and rumours that he's trying to get himself active to play Champions Tour at fifty, which would be very very interesting. Yeah, I've heard heard the same, and and I do think uh, you know the thing is like I think Tiger's fine if he can ride in a cart. Um, and I think that he's already said that, like uh, the Champions Tour, he is going to take uh, take a cart. Um, and I, I could certainly see him him winning on, on the Champions Tour. I don't think there's any question uh, any question about it. Um, I think, and this is hard for me to say because I've I've been a Tiger like Tiger's part of the reason why I started playing golf and started playing competitive golf. So, like, I think that I don't think he's going to win on the PJ Tour again. I don't think that he's going to win another major. I, th- I think that that. Uh, that ship has sailed. Um, and I do think as a golf community in pro golf, we do have to move on at some point. And that's sort of where I am now because he's had so many comebacks at this point. He's had so many injuries. He's had so many things that he's had to overcome. 
Um, and I <laughs> like I started seeing this on social social media when he started chipping, and there were there were videos coming coming out. It's like this like cycle of you get a little taste of Tiger being back, and then people start hyping it up, like oh he's gonna win again, he's gonna win another major, and this and that. And it's like for me personally, I am sort of over it. Like I th- I think that that hype around tiger as great as he is um i do think that at some point we do have to start moving on to like other things and that's actually part of the reason why i have been so um high on live is because i do think that live has brought some excitement to the game that like uh we're losing without having tiger so if we do want to potentially grow golf like we do need to have these other things that drive sort of popular interests, drive interest in pop culture to sort of bring eyes to whatever golf it is. Like, I I think that we need more of that. So that's part of the reason why I've been uh, really big on live. Uh, But I do think that, you know, Tiger, I could see him playing on the champions so I can see him winning again there. I think as far as the, the PJ tour goes and winning majors and like trying to walk, 72 holes like that's the big thing i don't think that his leg is ever really gonna greatly improve from from what it is now so it's like if you can't really walk 18 like trying to walk augusta national like i um i've walked it because i've been there to practice rounds and and such and i have a perfectly healthy body and it's it's very it's a very difficult walk so i can only imagine trying to do do that with uh you know a bad leg so you know that's just kind of how, how I feel about Tiger at this point. I think I think part of it is so like one of the reasons for people like they won't know why Scott and I became quite close is we both lost our father-in-laws at very similar time, didn't we? And we're both very, very, very close to our father-in-laws. So we both experienced loss. Obviously, Tiger lost his father who's very close to. And we've both got children. And I think that one of the things we can probably identify, and I really think about as a dad, that probably the thing that means the most to Tiger is actually he seems to be loving playing with his son. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, yeah, he can, uh, he can I'm gonna say almost, you know, a bit like my dad had to live, you know, his golfing life through, through me and what I was doing. Um, it's just a, it's just a way for Tiger to, to, to put his energy into that. Um, and I think that's great. And I think that'll be hugely beneficial for, um, for his, for his son. And, um, you know, he, he looks like he's going to be, you know something special. Um, how special? We'll have to wait and see. But I think uh, I think you're right, Ben. I think he's he, he's really enjoying that, um, and and that'll be a, a big focus for him. Yeah, it's just I think that parent and child event. He absolutely loves it. He enjoys doing it. You see some of the things he's done with being on the bag and announcing events, and this he seems to really enjoy that. And I wonder if you said to him, "You'll never compete again in a PGA Tour event." but you're going to be fit enough to play well and play with your son and play a few of the majors. I, I guess he takes it. I, I, I don't know because he's a competitor, but you feel he's been through so much. It's like someone joked and I don't know if it was actually was a joke, but they said this is Tiger's 30 second surgery or surgical procedure of some sort. And I don't know if I thought, Oh, that's a joke. And I was like, well, it might be, I, I actually don't know, but yeah, you just wonder at what point you go, right, I'll take my lot. I'll take playing with a kid. I'll take going to the Masters and turning up a few. Do you reckon that's the, what he wants? I don't, 
just to ch- chime in real, uh, really quickly, he's always said that he never wanted to be a ceremonial golfer. Like that was always his thing that he sort of talked about. However, I will say that people can change obviously over the course of time. And, and I don't think anybody could have foresaw all the things that he, that he's been through at this particular point. So I, I can definitely said they didn't like it. team golf and they just set up a, set up a TV league of team <laughs> golf. So let's not, let's not go with what people say. They, if they can flip flop. I remember, I remember our good mate Brooks they saying, were lying. I'm not going, I'm not going to live. I'm not going to live. I've signed yeah, for live. Look, oh I think pe- people do flip flop. So I'm not going to take any, any, the one I really hope flip flops as an American football fan is Deion Sanders says he's never going to coach in the NFL, and I really want Deion Sanders to go and coach the Cowboys. But let's not talk about NFL because Jay will cry because he's a Jets fan and he's just lost Aaron Rodgers and he is emotionally scarred. Okay, yeah, let's leave that then. Look, thank you, Scott, for joining us. Any closing words on Tiger and what you think will happen? Go and give us a prediction. What's his highest finish in a major, or does he never compete again? Um, I don't think he plays another major. Wow. Jay, we're going to stamp this. Jay, do you think he plays another major? <laughs> uh, you got a copy of guard, guard there, Scott. Um, <clears throat> I, I do think that he, uh, he will at least, uh, try to, um, the reason why, why I say that is because with everything that happened with him at the masters, not th- this year, but the previous year, like he was basically on one leg and he still made made the cut and was like semi-competitive. Like I, I do think that I, I could see him because he, he knows that course so well. He's a great putter. Like he knows those greens. Like he knows where to miss it. I do think that the, the Masters is the one. I think the U.S. Open, uh, I don't I don't. I'm not sure if he ever plays in an, uh, another U.S. Open. Like, I could see Pinehurst maybe because it's an easy walk. Um, yeah, so I'll I'll say Masters. He'll play in a few more of those. I think he'll he'll uh, he, he may even make make the cut again. But is he going to win another one? No. Here you are, ready for this one. He never plays another PGA Championship ever again. Never plays another U.S. Open ever again. He plays the Masters. He turns up to St. Andrews in four years' time. Finishes top five. Ladies and gentlemen, that <laughs> is the end of the show. Just bookmark it. Go and okay. put your money on it now. It's a mic drop. Yeah, it's a mic, mic drop. drop. Okay. Look, thank you so much, Scott. Bombshell yeah, thank you, Scott, for joining us. I'll see you on Monday. Fascinating insights there from the 2004 Volvo PGA champion, Mr. Scott Drummond. Always really, really interesting to listen to these players talk about what they do, what they love, and really how they do it, because it's just it's just so insightful, especially for an enthusiast like me, that will never ascend to those heights. And what did you think of Ben's mic drop predictions? What do you think of the fact that Tiger according to Mr. Drummond, may or may not play another major again. Let us know at GLU Golf Club over on Twitter. We'll see you next week with our Ryder Cup rundown. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy the Ryder Cup. Look after yourself. Enjoy your golf. Bye-bye for now.